Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. God's word given to us for our good. Let us attend to its reading. Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. Amen. I saw a news report this week, and I think it's a few weeks old, but it came out through The Guardian, which is a news outlet in the UK, and it was titled, The Only Way Out is Through Jesus. The El Salvador Pastors Saving MS-13 Gang Members. The story was very interesting, in many ways very beautiful and moving. There are many efforts going on inside of El Salvador, both inside of prisons and outside, in order to evangelize and to disciple and to minister to men who were involved in one of the most notorious gangs in all of the world. You may have remembered in recent months, this gang showed up on the news. Perhaps you saw uh, pictures of some of their members, and their members sometimes have quite a distinct look, sometimes covering their entire face with tattoos. And the result is a very intimidating, very unnatural, somewhat grotesque figure, someone that looks like anything but a normal functioning person in society. Outsiders, outcasts, those who live a life of horrible violence and crime. Yet this story outlines how thousands of their lives have been transformed through the gospel, through the efforts of these pastors, many of whom themselves are former gang members. Their unnatural appearance is in many ways an indictment against them. People see them make all kinds of judgments, many of them warranted, knowing that they are connected or had been previously connected to this gang. And yet, with their appearance, and taking in this story and seeing these lives that had been changed, there is an inner reality that is different, different than how they appear. Because in Christ, they are washed, renewed, forgiven, and justified. They become children of God. Does Jesus save even these. Yes, he does. And the fact that he does save those even like that is represented in our passage today. As a rejected outsider shows us by his gratitude that he has truly understood grace, that he has truly understood what Jesus has done for him. 
So here's our central truth this morning. The heart of a humble and saved sinner will always pour forth into gratitude and worship, while the self-righteous will always think that they deserve whatever good they get. The heart of a humble and saved sinner always pours forth into gratitude and worship, while the self-righteous will always think that they deserve whatever good that they get. Our life-transforming reality is this. If you would show forth your gratitude for God's grace, you must joyfully worship at the feet of Jesus, who is the person in whom true worship happens. If you would show forth your gratitude for God's grace, you must joyfully worship at the feet of Jesus, who is the person in whom true worship happens. Three ideas. The first is the difference between receiving, receiving by faith, and demanding because of our self-righteousness. The second is returning in gratitude, returning in gratitude to your Savior. And the third is rendering worship at Jesus' feet. So receiving, returning, and rendering. This passage in Luke begins somewhat of a new section. Jesus has gone through all of those wonderful and glorious parables about forgiveness and grace. He's on the move yet again. And we're reminded of Luke 9, 51, where Jesus first set his face to Jerusalem. We're reminded that this section of Luke's gospel is all about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. But you may have noticed that the pace is perhaps not as quick as you think it should be. For many chapters now, Jesus has been taking somewhat of a roundabout way to Jerusalem, stopping often to eat and to drink with people to teach and preach to proclaim the kingdom of God. So it's not necessarily the most direct route or a quick journey. Now, why is that? There are several reasons, but one of the most important reasons that we see is that as Luke brings us into the journey of Jesus and all of Uh, all of the things that he teaches and preaches and proclaims, what we find throughout this account is that as he continues down that road, as time goes on, less and less people are going to stick with Jesus, even to the end of the road where his most trusted and most beloved disciples will turn against him, they will betray him, and it will only be Jesus who follows his mission unto the end in order to tell us and to teach us and to remind us that it is Christ and it is Christ alone who saves. Only he can accomplish what he accomplishes. Only he can walk the road that, uh, down which he walks. Only Christ is our hope and our sufficiency. That's one of the main things that we see in this journey in Luke. That only he will follow his mission all the way to the cross. Jesus is between one of uh, is between the borders of Samaria and Galilee here, somewhat of a no man's land, and again not the most direct route uh, to Jerusalem. But he is met in this passage with ten lepers, and even though lepers would would congregate often together, the uh, numbering of ten gives us the overwhelming sense of sickness and despair. Two things to remember about leprosy in the Bible. The first is that it's, it's not what we today call leprosy. It's not uh, Hansen's disease. Rather, it's a whole category of skin afflictions, uh, a whole category of infected, damaged, chronic, and flaky skin problems. And the confusion between those two things is a story that you can trace out through the translations of the Bible throughout the ages. But it's not modern-day Hansen's disease. It's a whole category of skin affliction. Second, 
It is a, a kind of affliction or a category of afflictions that is given a spiritual coloring. It was something that separated people, particularly the Israelites, separated them from the covenant community. They were cast out and they had to remain out of the communal life until they did not have it anymore. We see this in various places. Leviticus chapter 13. The leprous man will remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. Numbers 5, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous. To be placed like this outside of the camp was really to be considered as if you were dead. And so to be healed from leprosy or to come out of one of these afflictions is in a sense like being raised from the dead. So it's not a pleasant Affliction to have, it's given this spiritual coloring. These are the people who are separated from God, cut off from a religious and communal life. They would have to specify to people who came near them that they were unclean. They would shout out unclean or sometimes they would bang uh, instruments or things that would make loud sounds in order to warn people not to come to close. And so they stand off at a distance from Jesus here in this passage and they cry out. As it says with a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now this is the only time in the Gospel of Luke, this word for Master, it only occurs in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke, but this is the only time that it occurs in Luke with someone other than an explicit disciple and follower of Jesus calling him Master. So these ten men with leprosy call out to Jesus and they call him Master. Why is that? One of the reasons I believe Luke has them saying this or telling us that they said this is he's pointing out that how earnestly men will cry for help when they feel their need of it. These men, these leprous men, are in an undeniable state of misery and despair. They can't work themselves out of it. They know that they are in this condition until something happens to them, until they are healed from it. And so how earnestly men will cry for help when they feel their need of it. How true that is for us, brothers and sisters. I can think back on times in my life where a relative was sick or there was some kind of situation that you knew needed to be resolved but you knew you couldn't get out of it and those are the times when you cry out to God most fervently and if you're anything like me you've experienced the conviction in those moments of this is the way I ought to pursue God in my prayer life in my spiritual walk I have to pursue him like this all of the time this shouldn't feel foreign to me that I'm crying out to God so earnestly, and it's ironic that I do so now that I am in this undeniable state of misery. And so one of the spiritual lessons that we must gain from this passage is that we are to see our own spiritual state, our own sinfulness, our own sinful nature as the leprosy here for these ten men. There is always something in us that separates us from God, that cuts us off from life with him. And if we start to see our own sinfulness like the way that people viewed this leprosy here, then what will we do? We will always cry out to God, understanding and knowing that we need his help. J.C. Ryle says this, 
How is it that dying men and women, with souls to be lost or saved, can know so little of real, hearty prayer? The answer to these questions is short and simple. The bulk of mankind have no sense of sin. They do not feel their spiritual disease. They are not conscious that they are lost and guilty and hanging over the brink of hell. When a man finds out his soul's ailment, he soon learns to pray. Like the leper, he finds words to express his need, and he cries for help. When a man finds out his soul's ailment, he soon learns to pray. And so, know, learn, and continue to know your ailment. Continue to know uh, what, what it is that's inside of all of us that upsets our Lord. He has redeemed us in Christ. We are forgiven of every sin, past and present and future. And yet our sinful nature, it lingers and remains. And all of that scarring that remains in our lives, that shows that we fall short day after day, shows that we still need to cry out to the Lord for mercy and for help. So in light of all of that, we ask ourselves, are we the kind of people who demand from God or do we receive from God. Remember last week Jesus was talking about being an unworthy servant. And, and what, uh, the lesson that he was teaching us there is that in light of all of the sins which God has forgiven you, you will never be able to say that anything good you receive from God is what you have deserved because you will never be able to equal that work of forgiveness that God has shown to you. Rather, go forth and forgive and in all things you are still an unworthy servant. And that's what it means to understand the gospel of grace. That's what it means to understand that what God has forgiven you, you will never be able to equal that work of forgiveness. Here there are ten who cry out to Jesus. He sends them on their way, and as they are going, they are healed. The implication, of course, is that it's the power of Jesus that heals them. But out of the ten, only one makes sure that he sees Jesus once again. And so Luke is giving us a picture of what it looks like to think of yourself as a worthy servant or as an unworthy servant. The nine that do not return are the picture of self-righteousness. Ultimately, the healing that Jesus has given to them is something that they deserved in their own minds, that they had convinced themselves it was something that God should grant to them. See, self-righteousness demands things from God. It's, it's living with God in a covenant of works. God, I'm a good person, generally doing good things. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not an MS-13 gang member. I'm not a criminal. There are many good things that I deserve and things that you should give me. That's not the cry of a heart of faith. A faithful heart receives. A self-righteous heart demands. And we've seen in the Gospel of Luke been reminding ourselves that self-righteousness is really the default setting of the human heart. No less a Protestant than Martin Luther, the founder of the Reformation, spoke upon this when he was preaching through this part of the Gospel of Luke. He says this, listen to these words, even though we are in faith, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, after all, I've done so much, surely he will take this into account. But when you come before God, leave all of that boasting at home and remember to appeal to grace. 
I myself have been preaching the gospel for almost 20 years, and I still feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself to sheer grace. But that is what I should and must do. That phrase, sheer grace, is something that shows up in our standards as well. The question is, have we submitted ourselves to sheer grace? It's called sheer grace because it's not diluted with anything. It's not mixed or combined with anything else. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the heart of faith receives that and does not make demands of God. So, receiving and demanding are different and how antithetical faith is to works righteousness. Second idea is this, returning in gratitude to the Savior. Returning in gratitude to the Savior. Here's the bottom line. The one man who returns shows us the only proper response of one who has actually understood the message of grace. The man who returns shows us that he is the only one who has actually understood the message of grace. We all know and cherish question and answer one in the Heidelberg Catechism, which only comfort in life and death. I'm not my own. I do not belong to myself. I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Equally important is question and answer two, which asks, what are the things you must know in order to live and to die in the joy and the hope of this comfort? Three things, our catechism says. First, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. All three, how great your sins and misery are, how you're delivered from that, how you are to be thankful for such deliverance. Guilt and grace and gratitude. If you leave out one of those, you still have not gotten it. You still have not fully understood what it is that God does to us by his grace. There's a quote that's been sticking in my head recently. It says this, if you do not think that the gospel is the best news you have ever heard, then you can be absolutely certain that you have not understood it. If you do not think that the gospel is the best news you have ever heard, then you can be absolutely certain that you have not understood it. And if you think of yourself as a worthy servant, as someone who could demand from God, who could, like these nine lepers who received healing and kept going on their way, kept going about their business, if you think you can demand things or that you deserve things from God, you have not gotten it. The only thing we have ever, demand, the only thing we have ever merited or deserved from God is eternal condemnation. But only one of these ten leprous men seems to understand what is really going on here. And this passage shows us the condition of his heart and by what he does, how much he grasps what it is that Christ has done for him. He comes back and he praises God, it says, with a loud voice. So all ten cried out to Jesus in a loud voice, but only one of the ten returns in gratitude, praising God with a loud voice. See, everyone cries out for mercy when they need it. 
but only the faithful cry out in joyful reverence and gratitude after they have received it. Everyone cries out for mercy when they need it, but only the faithful cry out in joyful reverence and gratitude after they have received it. That highlights something else that we should notice, that we cannot equate the healings, the physical healings of Jesus with spiritual renewal and eternal life. Now, of course, there's a relationship between the two. Jesus is giving us signs, pointers to the eternal life that he gives. But even in the Gospels, all of those whom Jesus uh, heals, sets free of sickness, it's not necessarily so that each and every one of those people experience inward healing and eternal life and forgiveness. We see that 90% of those here in this passage continue on their way and do not experience this complete healing of body and soul. They do not come back to Jesus to hear this pronouncement, your faith has saved you. This also reminds us of what we must consider on the other hand, that all of those who experience renewal, justification, forgiveness, redemption in Christ will not necessarily have healthy bodies on this earth or padded bank accounts or prosperous lifestyles. You cannot equate those things together. And if we see it in our world oftentimes today, people saying that Jesus is like your genie. He can grant to you all of your wishes. He can make all of your problems go away. But that is another gospel entirely. And friends, we must not be ashamed of the gospel. The health and wealth and prosperity is not the gospel. It's something else entirely. But what the gospel does lead us to is worship. It leads us to worship. Notice verse 16 in this passage. Two components of verse 16 make it very clear that this one leprous man who returns is worshiping Jesus. First thing he does, he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. That is posture and an act of Worship. One of the best places where this is illustrated for us is Revelation 19. The Apostle John has this vision of the throne room in heaven. He sees the 24 elders who throw themselves down, fall before the throne, and worship God. Same verb here uh, for fall down. So he sees this glorious heavenly worship taking place. Then just a few verses later, he comes face to face with this awe-striking figure, a, a glorious angel. And we read in Revelation 19.10, John says, I fell down at his feet to worship him. Same verb for falling down here that we see in the Gospel of Luke. Falls down to worship this angel. But he said to me, that is the angel, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This angel rejects worship and says it is reserved for God alone. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus accepts this Samaritan's worship. He commends him for it, for he is the only true God. Falling down, uh, that is the first aspect of his worship of Jesus. The second aspect is his giving of thanks. He gives thanks, and that Greek word is how we get our English word Eucharist the giving of thanks, and it is a a reverential giving of thanks as to your covenant Lord, knowing and recognizing that it is only in Him that your salvation can be found. It's only in Him that you are granted and given every good thing. 
So we need to consider our, uh, in our own lives, brothers and sisters, do we have this heart that is a thankful heart? Both in our common blessings, the things that we receive if God has blessed us with health and with a healthy family to enjoy and food on our table. Many things for which to be thankful. We need to give thanks and praise to God for that. But more importantly, are we filled with thankfulness because of the salvation that we have been given? Because of the redemption that is ours in Christ? It should be something that strikes us with awe and wonder each and every day to where, to where we say, how can I ever, how can I ever repay the Lord for what he has done for me? Psalm 116, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. It's the worship of God. The worship of God in Christ, which we give back to the Lord and which we praise him for all he has done for us. Luther highlights this in a beautiful way. He says, the true worship is to return, as we see this man do, and praise God with a loud voice. This is our greatest work in heaven and on earth. Besides, it is the only worship we may bring to God, for he needs none of the other kind and is not capable for it, for he will only be loved and praised by us. Concerning this, Psalm 50 speaks, For the, the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Offer unto God the sacrifices of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Return to your Savior. Return to your Savior and show forth the true gratitude of one who grasps what it is that he does for us in the gospel. And then finally, render worship to God. At the feet of Jesus. Render worship to God at the feet of Jesus. The man who returns shows us how the life and ministry of Jesus transformed worship to be something that takes place in Christ and not at a temple. True worship is something that takes place in Christ and not at a temple. Verse 16 ends with a bit of a shock. Imagine being someone who's not reading this gospel but rather is hearing it. And so you hear about the one, one of these ten lepers, who turns back to worship Jesus, and then you find out, after you hear about his returning, that he is, oh, by the way, a Samaritan. He is a Samaritan. This would have come as a shock, especially to the Israelites. Important or, or interesting also to see that in this passage, Jesus is sort of going between the borders of Samaria and Galilee, suggesting that perhaps there were both Samaritans and Jews who were listening in on what Jesus, or watching what Jesus uh, was doing here in this story. So this would have been a shock to the Israelites who would have heard it. And by doing so, Jesus is finding a pressure point and he's pushing into it a little bit. He's making them uncomfortable. We've already seen him do this kind of thing with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's one who shows forth, shows what it means to love God and to love neighbor. He was a Samaritan. No fond feelings, of course, between the Israelites and the Samaritans. Samaritans were viewed as both heretics and traitors. They had constructed their own system of worship. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim about 100 years or so before the life of Jesus. That temple had been destroyed, so there is really a lot of hatred and no fondness between the Samaritans and 
the Jews. And so Jesus, in doing this, healing this man and seeing that this man was a Samaritan who comes back to worship Jesus, that pressure point, you feel uh, it building a little bit more and more. And he is the only one who comes back, who turns back and who offers true worship to God and true worship to God in Christ. Presumably the other nine continue on their way because they'll go and they'll see the priests and they'll be welcomed back into their life in community. But since this man is a Samaritan and since he would have belonged to a a different system of worship, that creates a difficulty for him. If you go through this passage and then especially see what Jesus calls him at the end of verse 18, it says, no one returns except for this foreigner. In the Old Testament, we read that this word, foreigner, these are the people who weren't allowed to eat the Passover meal. These were the people who weren't allowed to avail themselves of the work of the priests. They were to touch nothing holy. And in the temple, during Jesus' life, above the entrance to the temple, there was inscribed a quotation from Ezekiel 34 that said, No foreigner shall enter my sanctuary. So the irony is that for this man, perhaps it was easiest for him to turn back and to come and to thank Jesus. But in doing so, he comes to the place where true and rightful worship takes place, where he can enter into the worship of God in and through Jesus. The Samaritan returned. Rather than going to the priest, he ascribed all to the great high priest, to the true priest. And in doing so, he gives us a glimpse of what new covenant worship is. It is worship in Christ. It happens through a person, not at a place. C.S. Lewis was famous for saying, when I became a Christian, I thought I had come to a place. I found out that I came to a person. When you come to self-righteous religion, you come to a place. When you come to Christ, you come to person. The place comes only afterwards when you realize that the people of God who are given the spirit of God in Christ, we become the temple of God. And so when we come together to worship, whether it's in a sanctuary with vaulted ceilings or a building with no glory, a house, a cave, wherever, those who come together truly in the name of Christ, by the power of the spirit, underneath the authority of the word of God, they are taking, they are taking part in true worship. So take stock of this whole story. A Samaritan who had leprosy as far from God as humanly possible. And maybe we see those kinds of people in our world today. Maybe they are part of horrible groups. Maybe their faces are covered in tattoos. But the distance between this man and God is completely closed by the work of Christ and by his faith. Jesus says at the end, Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. In other words, faith brought him closer to God than he ever could have been otherwise. And he comes closer to God by coming to Christ and falling at his feet than the other nine who continue to go on and to see the priest. So the key to this story is to first see ourselves, see in ourselves this condition of leprosy. In all of us, there is something that separates us from God, leaves us with no other choice but to cry out, Jesus, have mercy on me. 
And if we understand that, if we understand what it is that God does for us, the only proper response is gratitude that works itself out in love and worship to God and service to neighbor. As Martin Luther says, if you understand what it is from which God has freed you and what it is God has bestowed upon you, you are then freed up to love and serve others without expecting anything in return because God has already given us every good thing. Self-righteousness demands, but faith receives. And faith receives that which only comes through Christ. The end of this news story that I saw this past week. Look at these men. You see men similar, perhaps, to uh, leprous Samaritans. Their very appearance indicting them. They, they being the kinds of people you'd never want to be around. One, one young man towards the end of the story gets out of prison. He had come to the Lord, come to faith, and he moves into one of these halfway houses. And he's shown a tiny little corner in a tiny little room, this place where he will be sleeping. It's a little mattress, a little children's mattress there in the corner of this room. And he has shown this is the place now where he will sleep. This is his home. And as he looks at this mattress, the reporter can't help but asking him, how do you feel? In other words, he's probing how real this faith in Christ is at this moment, now that you realize that you have basically nothing in this world. And with a smile, this young man looked up and he said, grateful with God and victorious, always grateful with God. No matter what you have in life, if you have received the grace of God. You will be filled with gratitude. You will return. You will return to the one who has saved you. You will render worship at the feet of Jesus, who is the one in whom true worship takes place. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have given us this chance to hear from it. We ask that you by your spirit, would work and move in us through this passage, that you would remind us of your goodness, and Father, that uh, you would apply this word to our hearts and that we would live it out in our lives. Thank you so much for the salvation that you give to us. Father, glorify your name through this congregation, in our lives, in our families, in our homes. We live and uh, we breathe for your glory and your honor, not our own, We give it all to you, and we want to live all for you by your your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.